I know that your Bibles are probably all nicely and quickly just falling open to James. We've had a great series in James, haven't we, on bold living. Um, just really excellent. I, I really love that opportunity to camp out in one book and just really have a look at it in its entirety. If you missed any of those um, in our series in James, um, I hope that you know that we do have a podcast available. Um, it's a great opportunity to catch up on any sermons that you might miss. Uh, but today we are turning to John, the very last chapter in John, chapter 21. And uh, while you're making your way there, I'll just pray. It's good to pray. <clears throat> Father, we just are grateful for the ability to get into your word together this morning. I thank you, God, that there are always things that are on your heart to communicate to us. And so, Lord, as we read your word together, I ask, Father, that um, you would just breathe life on those things that I have prepared, that you would speak to us clearly, God. The Father, this wouldn't just simply be words but that you would release life to us through them that you would continue your work of transformation in our lives that you would change us god and so we just ask these things in jesus name amen i want to start by reading the passage that we're going to spend time in together today and that's john 21 it's a fairly large slab of scripture verses 1 to 19 you can follow along um, if you like. So this is after, obviously, Jesus has risen and says this in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, don't you just love that John describes himself as that? I've always thought that that's a very arrogant way for him to describe himself, but I was reading something recently that said, actually, this is how we all should describe ourselves, the, the disciple whom Jesus loves. So that disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, um, the writer of this gospel, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments for he was stripped off for work and threw himself into the sea. Gotta love Peter. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore 
full of large fish, 153 of them to be precise. And, on, and although there were so many, the net had not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? This is very funny. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said this to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I really do not like getting things wrong. I hate making mistakes and failing. I just don't like it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like the way that I imagine other people might be perceiving me through my mistakes and failures. And I have this tendency when I fail or make a mistake to just keep replaying it over and over and over again in my mind. I'm not talking about the kind of mistake like sticking a red sock in the whitewash and turning everything pink. That's annoying, but I don't mean that kind of mistake. But one of those mistakes that comes to mind to me is that I, we had these dear friends, um, this was a, quite a few years ago now, and the wife and mother of these friends had died really tragically from cancer and we were doing quite a bit to care for them and we're having them over for a meal and I said, come over, have a meal, we'll watch a movie, it'll be great. And I'd carefully selected my movie. I should really have known don't ever choose a movie about dogs after my childhood experiences with Lassie because dog movies are just sad. But I thought that I'd chosen a really good movie and it ended up being all about death and it was just terrible. And I was sitting there with these friends who were walking through the grieving process. Actually, I just could not let forgive myself. For weeks, I kept replaying this, I'm so stupid. I really should have checked this movie more carefully. I don't know if you can relate to this, but just that thing of replaying our mistakes and our failures over and over again in our mind, it can be really hard to fail and fall short. But if there are certainties in this life, one of them is that I will and you will indeed fail and make mistakes because we're human. Peter was a human just like us. And I feel out of all the 12 disciples, perhaps putting Judas to the side, as an individual, his humanity seemed most regularly on display to us in the Gospels. Peter absolutely loved Jesus. He was a believer. He was part, actually, of Jesus's inner circle of three, Peter, James and John. And so as a result, he was included in many important and intimate moments with Jesus during Jesus's time of ministry. 
He knew and had declared out loud who Jesus um, was. He certainly showed capacity, didn't he, to blurt his mouth off and that got him into trouble a few times. But he genuinely wanted to do the right thing by Jesus. He'd be the guy who would cut somebody's ear off or put his body on the line. He'd go to prison or die if needs be, all for the sake of his Lord. He went as far as to tell Jesus, they, meaning the other disciples, may fall away, but I won't. In his heart of hearts, he never thought that he would fail Jesus until he came face to face with the pain of his own failures and human frailty. It's easier than we might like to think to lose a grip on truth and our own good intentions when we feel scared, discouraged, disappointed, overwhelmed, distracted, confused or in pain. And this is exactly where Peter found himself. All four Gospels record Peter's denial of Jesus. I wonder how we'd feel about having such a concrete record of our failures times four. (laughs) In Matthew's account of Peter's denial, he goes into quite a lot of detail. And he describes how Peter starts off just trying to dodge attention. Oh, no, got the wrong man, not me. When he's questioned again about his association with Jesus, this time he becomes more adamant and he swears an oath. I promise, it's, I've nothing to do with this man. This is, this, it's, you've got the wrong guy. But finally, when none of that works, to make his point abundantly clear, he basically does the equivalent of dropping the F-bomb into the conversation as he denies anything to do with Jesus at all. And then the rooster crows. Peter is absolutely gutted. He doesn't just shed a few tears. This is like ugly, painful, wrenching sorrow at his failure. I don't know if you can imagine just the pain and the crushing guilt and shame that Peter must have felt in that moment. But the amazing thing is, is this is not where Peter's story ends. He doesn't disappear into obscurity, never to be seen of or heard of again. Incredibly, this this failure does not disqualify him. And this is good news for us. Our failure does not have to disqualify us. As we'll see in Peter's story, We serve a God of mercy and grace who willingly meets us right in the middle of our own mess and failure to bring restoration. John 21 is an interesting chapter. It almost seems like a postscript to John's gospel. In the end of chapter 20, um, John seems to be wrapping up. He explains the reason why he's written his book. But then he dives into this one final story. Interestingly, whilst all four Gospels record Peter's denial, it's only his mate John who records his restoration. There are, of course, practical reasons why the Holy Spirit would inspire John to have recorded this. 
I mean, for credibility's sake, you can't really record the failure for all time of the rock upon which Jesus chose to build his church as an apostle in Peter and then leave us hanging just at the bitter tears bit. But there is something far more significant about this chapter than redeeming Peter's credibility as an apostle. This story reflects the very heart and nature of God as a restorer. Restoration is at the heart of the gospel message. And John 21, in my view, records one of the most beautiful pictures of restoration after failure. This story actually holds particular significance for me. You see, I've had my fair share of personal failures. I don't know how many of you have heard parts of my testimony, but I grew up in a loving um, but non-Christian household. My parents as yet don't know the Lord. And my first introduction to Jesus really was as an early teen attending a youth group. Now, if I'm honest, I was attending the youth group predominantly for the boys. Um, I remember once finding a letter that my mum was writing to my aunt back in the UK. It was half written. And it said something along the lines of, Catherine seems to have found religion. Or maybe it's that she's just found boys. I remember feeling mortified. But, but the truth of the matter is, your parents know more than you give them credit for. Remember that, girls. Um, it wasn't really until university that I began following Jesus in earnest. And so in Melbourne, I was immersed in church on, um, within the Christian campus ministry. I led prayer groups, Christianity Explained groups. I was just fully immersed in this new life with Jesus. Um, I had many Christian friends while I was at uni and as they walked alongside me, I walked really sure-footedly in my faith, or, or so I thought. I, I couldn't really imagine walking away from Jesus. He was my life. But in my last year of uni, that's exactly what I did. I walked away. There were many complex reasons for that. I experienced hurt and disappointment, but there was just also the plain sneakiness of sin. I finished my degree, returned to Canberra, began working as an occupational therapist. Justin and I got married and bought our first home. And the ache for Jesus really was barely recognisable in my life. But in the faithful, merciful and very sneaky ways of God, I stood in church for the first time in six years at a wedding. And there he set the stage for my restoration. I wasn't even an invited guest, I was a spectator, it was a girl that I worked with. And as they began to sing a few worship choruses, I just tangibly felt the presence of God come over me and I began to cry. I found myself thinking, what am I doing trying to live without you? I got myself to church the very next day and that was 24 years ago. I spent the next few years grateful to God for taking me back, but quite sure that he would not entrust this unfaithful woman with much. I was wrong. 
You see, his love is extravagant and it is restorative. It's redemptive and merciful and pursuing and generous and kind. And in his grace, I was not disqualified by my failure and instead I was restored. So in John 21, we have this story of seven men going fishing. They know Jesus is risen. They've actually seen him twice already at this point. And like you, like you, I've heard many conjecture, much conjecture sorry, about the state of mind of the disciples as they went fishing and in particular Peter. We don't really know for sure what they were thinking, but we do know that Peter at this point is still carrying the pain of failure. Did Peter suggest going fishing simply because he felt disqualified from ministry and he needed to find something else to do? He's going back to his old job. Don't know. Did they go fishing because the next steps were actually pretty unclear at this point and they didn't know from moment to moment when Jesus was going to appear again? Did they simply need cash? John records this really obscure fact of 153 fish. Who on earth sat there and counted 153 fish? But I was wondering, well, is it because they took them to market to get money for them? And so they knew how many fish that they had caught that day. In what had been an altogether tumultuous couple of weeks, fishing may simply have been something familiar and comforting a place to quietly contemplate, working with their hands and staying occupied, surrounded by smells and sounds that were familiar to them. But regardless of their motives, as we look from the inside, from the outside in, sorry, what's really happening is a divine setup. I would suggest orchestrated primarily for the purposes of restoring Peter just because that's how amazing our God is, that he would go to such lengths. There is a distinct sense of deja vu about this scene, isn't there? In Luke 5, we read a very similar story. Men in a boat, fishing all night and catching nothing, although, I don't know, my experience of fishing, that's not that unfamiliar, but... Um, a man unknown to them suggests they try and cast the net on the other side of the boat and their catch is so huge that it takes two boats to bring it in and the nets remain unbroken. In this instance, Peter, a fisherman, is completely undone. He falls on his knees at, at Jesus' feet, aware of his sin in the presence of God himself. And from that point on, he gives his life to follow Christ. So here we are again, men, a boat, a man who they seemingly don't think they know on a beach giving instructions to cast their net to the other side because they didn't catch anything all night, and a massive catch too big to haul in, but the nets don't break. And this is Peter's moment. It takes his friend to give him a bit of a nudge, and I don't know why, but I imagine this in an Aussie accent. So, Pete, mate, it's the Lord. I do want to pause here and just make an observation that I think is important because in the midst of his failure and the pain of that failure, there is something that Peter does right here, and that is that he doesn't isolate himself. 
You see, living with regret and the pain of failure can make us isolate ourselves. We can withdraw, we take ourselves out of the game, we disqualify ourselves. And to be honest, that's where many good people, many Christian people, get stuck, hidden in their shame. Now, we don't know if Peter's friends pursued him. What we know is that he allowed them to come on this fishing trip with him. And this is pure conjecture on my part. But I do find myself wondering if he'd actually chatted over with John how he was feeling in his failure. Because what I find interesting is that when John finally realises that it's Jesus on the beach, of the seven men on the boat, it's Peter that he says it's the Lord too. It's Peter that he says it's the Lord, almost like he knew Peter needed to be reconnected with Jesus at this point. And I know that in my life there have been many times where in the pain of my own failure I've needed help of good friends to recognise and point me to Jesus because we're really meant to do life in community. And that's what I see Peter doing here. He hasn't pulled himself out, even though he may be suffering with all of those feelings that go with such a significant failure. He's around friends. And as a result of being around friends, his friend John helps him recognise that it's Jesus on the beach. So remember, this is not the first time that Peter has seen Jesus since he's risen. But this time there just seems to be a real desperation, doesn't there, in Peter to get to Jesus. So this very funny picture of him throwing on his clothes to jump into the water. And I just wonder whether part of that urgency and what was stirring him, and I guess it's why I think of it as a divine setup, is there's this whole prophetic rerun going on of the point at which he was first called to follow Christ. It's like it's reminding and stirring up in him again a reminder of that first calling to follow Jesus and a reminder of God's faithfulness in his life. And so he jumps in the water, swims 90 metres, no small feet with heavy garments, which they would have been in those days, no light swimming gear on for him. He rushes towards Jesus, the only one who can restore him. And then his boatload of friends and the fish come not far behind. I wonder how this story would have ended if Peter didn't get out of the boat and didn't move towards Jesus. I think it is something worthy of our reflection, which is that God's heart is always willing to restore. But we do need to turn and move towards him. And this is what Peter is doing in this story. And as Peter reaches the shore, all waterlogged, Jesus greets him. Not with a stern word and a lecture about, I told you so, but with a cooked breakfast. You see, in our household, cooked breakfasts are reserved for special occasions like birthdays and Father's Day. And I think this is a very special occasion. Jesus is expecting Peter and he knew exactly what Peter needed to be healed from the pain of his failure and to be fully restored. He always knows exactly what we need too. 
So here they are, gathered around a charcoal fire. I want you to remember that Peter's failure took place around a fire. And Jesus asks him three times if he loves him, one for each time that Peter denied him. The third time, Peter, with a sort of a mingling of passion and grief and sadness that still seems to be lingering, says, you know everything. You know I love you. And of course Jesus knows everything. These confessions are not for Jesus' sake. They're not repetitive just to shame Peter. Jesus knows that in this moment, this is what Peter needs. There's something very powerful about our out loud confessions, about the link between our mouth and our heart and our mind. An important example is at the point of salvation for us, where we're exhorted to not only believe in our heart, but to also confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so as Peter confesses with his mouth, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he hears his own confession and his own confession of love for Jesus replaces those three denials that have been round and round and round in his head, reinforcing his failure and instead restoration and truth replaces that. And then as Peter confesses his love for Jesus three times over, Jesus reaffirms Peter's calling, feed and tend my sheep. There's one final piece of information in this passage that on face value could seem almost cruel. Jesus tells Peter how he will be martyred. What I want you to remember is that before the denial, Peter has confidently told Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I will go with you to death. In this moment, Jesus affirms Peter. Peter, you will indeed lay down your life for me. You are that man. What we find in this story is that Peter is restored fully. He is restored in relationship. He is restored in his mind and in his emotions. And he's restored in his calling. The restoration that Jesus offers us, even after failure of our own doing, is absolutely complete and lacking nothing. Failure is not the end of Peter's story and it does not have to be the end of ours either. Adam, would I be able to get the worship team back up? I suspect, if you're anything like me, that you would prefer to forget your past failures. There have been many, many times where I have wished that turning my back on the Lord for those six years was not part of my history. But in each of the failures that God has restored me from, I am reminded again and again of his faithfulness. 
and that I need have no hesitation when I fail to run straight to him for restoration. As I prepared this message for today, I just had a sense from the Lord that whilst for some of us this is just a good reminder of the fact that um, of God's faithfulness to us in our past mistakes and failures, but that for some people here today, the pain of failure is actually still very much a part of your present reality that indeed you may even be feeling like hiding, that you feel a bit stuck in regret and remorse and that indeed you may have disqualified yourself, taken yourself out of the game. And as I prayed for this morning, I just want to say to you that if this resonates with you, I believe there's just a simple invitation and that is to get out of the boat and move towards Jesus because his arms are open wide. He is so faithful. He's, as it were, waiting with a cooked breakfast for you, not with a word of rebuke. He knows what you need to be healed from the pain of failure to be fully and completely restored and he's expecting you. I just want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're just going to spend a moment just um, focusing our hearts, allowing the Lord to speak to us individually and uniquely as only he can do and we're going to sing a song together of worship and declaration we have communion this morning set up at the front here and so as we sing and as you feel ready i would just invite you to come and take communion with the one who is restorative the one who's made a way for us to remember his faithfulness and to allow him to meet your needs. You're free to respond to Jesus in any way that you want to. That may be kneeling at the front. But I would encourage you this morning that if this has resonated with you in any way, if you feel stuck in the pain of failure, that you wouldn't rush away, but that you would take the time. And if you would like someone to stand with you and pray with you, then our prayer team would consider it a privilege to do so. So would you join with us as we sing?